Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. Have a good day. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. How far could they fly in 63 6,000 statute miles. They actually flew further than that, but that's 6,000 miles direct from Moscow to Vancouver. But they got to the North Pole, and they couldn't go any higher, and they're icing up, and it's getting dark. So they decided to turn it to the east, went out to our west coast, and dropped down during the night and found the coast, followed the coastline. Said they came up the Columbia River, a very low altitude and rainy, and uh, then went back up in the clouds and headed for Eugene. They're running out of gas, and the weather, apparently the weather was soft in the head, so they turned around and came back. And they landed here partly because... Uh, Levinevsky had landed here in 1929 with a twin-engine Russian bomber, and so they knew about Pearson Field. So they landed, and that was real history, and that really put Vancouver on the world map. Welcome to Reimagined Radio a program about radio storytelling. I'm Jack Armstrong. With each episode, we combine dialogue, sound effects, and music to engage your listening imagination. This episode is no different, and here to tell you about it is John Barber, producer and host. Thank you, Jack. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Reimagined Radio. This episode is called Hearing Voices, and it's brought to you by KXRW-FM Vancouver, Washington, and KXRY-FM Portland, Oregon. We thank them for their support. The voices we will hear are sampled from the Oral History Collection in the Clark County Historical Museum, Vancouver, Washington. Oral histories are stories about significant events told by people who experienced those events firsthand. We've picked three very interesting oral histories for this episode. We'll share them in just a moment. But first, here's the voice of Bradley Richardson, director of the Clark County Historical Museum. Hi, this is Brad Richardson. A lot of people think all we do is exhibits. That's a big part of what we do, but really, the bigger picture is that we tell stories about Clark County and Southwest Washington. These stories you will hear in this episode of Reimagined Radio come from our oral history collection. This collection is deep and rich with stories, each told in the voices of those who lived the experiences their stories describe. They are true stories. The dialogue is unscripted, unpolished, and absolutely compelling. We're pleased to partner with Reimagined Radio to share these oral histories with you. Thank you for listening. And thank you for your support of the Clark County Historical Museum. For the first act of our Reimagined Radio episode, Hearing Voices, we present Erskine Wood. Mr. Wood tells how, in 1893, at the age of 13, he lived with Chief Joseph and the Ne Per Se people in the Nespelum Valley, just north of present-day Grand Coulee Dam in Washington State. Let's listen now to Living with Chief Joseph. An Oral History by Erskine Wood. Well, perhaps, children, first I'd better tell you who Chief Joseph was. He was the chief of the Nez Perce Indians, as people call them. Some people call them Nez Perce. I call them Ne Percy. It really is the French word for pierced nose. But these Indians did not have pierced noses. I don't know how they got that name, but the early French-Canadian trappers gave it to them. 
Now, I was born right here in Vancouver Barracks, the son of an army officer. And later, he left the army and went to live in Portland. And while we were in Portland, he asked me one time when I was 13 years old if I'd like to go and live with Chief Joseph, whom he knew and had fought against in the war. And I said I would. Now, I spoke of the Indian War, and that gives me a chance to tell you about this chief. He was a very fine man. He was brave and generous and handsome and spoke beautifully with a fine voice, and you would have loved him if you had been sitting around his fire in his teepee. And he lived in the Wallawa Valley in the northeastern corner of Oregon, a beautiful place. And that was his home and his rightful home. But the white people came along in more and more numbers and crowded in on him. And finally, they forced him to leave his home. They put him out of it, said he could not stay there anymore. Now, he was willing to go because he knew he was helpless against the United States armies. But his younger men and his people wanted to resist. And so he did not want to desert his people, and so he stayed with them. And they started to obey the United States Army and leave their Wallawa Valley, their beautiful place. But after they began to leave, some of them got resentful, and they decided they'd rather fight. And so Chief Joseph led his band of people on a war uh, which was very brilliant and they fought many fine fights in which he usually was victorious. But finally, after three months of fighting, he had to surrender because there were too many soldiers for him coming at him from all directions. And so way up in Montana in a bitter cold November morning, he decided to surrender, and he said, from where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. So our government at first sent him and his people down to Indian territory, but it didn't suit them down there. Many of them died in a bad climate, and finally, through the intervention of my father and some other friends of Chief Joseph, and my father had fought against him in this war, but he became his friend, nevertheless. So they persuaded the government in Washington to send Chief Joseph and his people back north again, not to their own original home in the Wallawa Valley, but on the Colville Reservation, up near where near the Grand Coulee Dam now is. So there Chief Joseph lived with his people in a little valley called the Nespelum Valley. There were only about 150 of them altogether because their numbers had dwindled very much since the war. And that is where I went to live with them. Now, when I went, I was a pretty small boy and I got lost on the, when the train dumped me off at a little place called Cheney near Spokane. And I was waiting for another train and it didn't come along and I felt awfully lonely and I sat down on the station platform and began to cry. But a nice white man came along and comforted me and told me another train had come along to take me where I wanted to go, and it did. And so then I went by horse and wagon many, many miles, about 75 miles, I think, to a little place on the Columbia River called Barry. It was nothing but a little house where a white man uh, kept things to trade with the Indians. And there I crossed the Columbia River. It was swift and pretty wide. And I crossed in an Indian dugout. The Indians took me over. And from there I went about 15 miles more to Joseph, Chief Joseph's camp. Now I call him Chief Joseph because that's what the white people called him. But that was not his Indian name. His Indian name was Himmatuyelet which means uh, thunder rolling in the mountains, 
or thunder striking through the water, we are not quite sure which. But the first part of it, him that, that means thunder. That was his name. And his own family and friends and people always called him him material except. And while I'm talking about his name and his family, I will tell you he had two wives, both very nice women. One was named Aya Two We Have Met in My. The other was named Wawin Kipsialikatsit. And I lived in their own teepee, you might call it a wigwam. Lived with them all the time. And they took fine care of me. Chief Joseph was just like a father to me. And his two wives were just like mothers. They made my clothes and they washed them and did everything that they could for me. And then there was a nice boy, two or three years older than I was. He lived in the family, too, in the same teepee. And his name was Cool Cool Smoomo. And we used to have lots of fun together. We uh, hunted and fished. I had a rifle and a shotgun, both. Of course, he didn't have any gun then. And uh, we hunted the pheasants and uh, grouse and uh, ducks and prairie chickens, and we caught trout. But we had one duty we had to do, that was to take care of the horses. Chief Joseph had about 50 or 60 or 75 horses in, in one band, and they roamed uh, in the uh, nearby uh, hills and, in the, and got the grass there. And uh, every other day or so, Coco Smallman and I had to go bareback on, on horses out to where the big band of horses were and uh, catch new ones, fresh ones, for use of Chief Joseph and his family for the next day or two. We would ride out into the hills and we'd find the band of horses five or six miles away and then we'd drive them to a water hole in the Nestealum River. And first we'd drive them just slowly, going along easy, but when we came about a quarter of a mile from the water hole, We'd make them go on a dead gallop. We'd thunder along in a cloud of dust and thundering horses' hoofs, and we'd rush them into the water hole, because there we had them all penned in with high willows all around them. And so we could go in then with our ropes. We had hair ropes. And lasso the fresh ones that we wanted to use for the next day or two. So that, that was the only really duty we had to perform. Well, in the summertime, in the camp at Nestealum, we lived uh, all the time in one place. And uh, every week, we used to have it on Sundays, we'd have wonderful horse races. Uh, the uh, young men rode the horses. They were men about 18, 19, 20 years old, and they rode them bareback. They didn't wear any clothes except the little claws around them. And uh, the horses would go thundering across the prairie and back again in a cloud of dust, and uh, whoever was the winner, he won the bets of blankets and other things that had been put up as prizes for the race. But in the autumn, when the summer began to be over and the nights began to be cold, then we went into the mountains to uh, kill deer so that we'd have enough meat to eat through the winter. And uh, that's what we call the fall hunt. And the, the tribe split up into different bands, perhaps three or four or five families in each band, and they all scattered in different parts of the mountains so that each one would get the best deer hunting, not all be concentrated in one place. And I used to like that very much. The uh, families then would all live in one big long teepee instead of one single round one. They'd put a lot of their round teepees together and make a big long house out of it with four fires in a row in it instead of one single fire in the center. That made it warmer and more comfortable and it also made it nicer to dry the venison uh, that we brought in because the squaws would build a nice neat wraps over the fires about as high as your head and uh, there they'd cut the venison up into thin strips and dry it. And by the way, when I speak of a teepee and being as high as your head, 
A teepee is a very comfortable place to live in if you don't stand up all the time. Because if you stand up, uh, if it's at all smoky that day, if the drafts aren't working just right, by then the smoke gets in your eyes and makes them smart. But in a teepee, you're generally just sitting down or lying down or loafing or squatting. And there you're below all the smoke, and it's a very comfortable, nice, warm house to live in. Well, on the fall hunt, we used to get up very early in the morning, long before daylight. And we would go a little way from the teepee down the creek. Of course, we were always camped on some creek for water. And we'd go below the camp a little way, and there we would take a sweat bath. Now, the reason we took the sweat bath was to remove all human scent from our bodies so that when we hunted, the deer would not scent us and run away. We wanted to get up close to them for a good shot. And the way we took the sweat bath was two ways. One way was to dig a round hole about, oh, five feet wide and about uh, two feet deep right close to the creek with only enough bank of earth between the hole and the water in the creek to nicely separate them, but so as to let some water seep through into the hole we dug. So the hole would be full of about a foot and a half of water that came in through the creek. Then we'd fill that hole full of red-hot rocks, which we heated in a fire beside it, and roll the stones into the water and get them good and hot. Then we'd jump in there and bathe ourselves, and then from there, we'd go into the cold water in the creek, and that was our bath. But another way, and I think it was nicer, was we took a sweat bath by crawling into a little uh, hut which they built. And there, uh, we had some red hot stones in the hut with us, and we dribbled water over the stones and made clouds of steam. And that steam would envelop our naked bodies and uh, it was very hot, and uh, we would sweat very much, and then we'd come out from there and get in the cold water in the creek. Sometimes we had to break ice in the creek to get in. And the first time I took a bath like that, I got frightened because I didn't understand just how to do it. When you're in a sweat house, you have to hold your nose right down close to the ground, right close to the earth. Because when the steam rushes up from those hot stones, it smothers you if you hold your head up high near the roof of the little house. And I didn't understand that the first time, so I was almost smothering to death, and I yelled to one of my friends outside. His name was Little Wolf, but his Indian name was Muyes, and I said, Muyes, Muyes. And they all laughed and, and left me out of there, and then they told me that after that, I must hold my nose close down to the earth. And after I did that, I found it was a very nice way to take a good hot bath. Well, then after we took that sweat bath, we had a nice breakfast, and then we uh, started off on the hunt. We had horses. We usually rode out a little way from the camp, and there we left our horses, and we'd hunt a foot. And when we killed the deer, there were probably five or six or seven or eight men hunting on this one hunt, and we probably killed three or four deer that day. And uh, then we'd bring them in on the horses. But from that time on, it was the squaws' work. They uh, skinned the deer and uh, chopped them up and divided the meat among the families and, uh, it, and dried it. Uh, but uh, I was a little wrong when I said the squaws divided the meat. Uh, it was Joseph who divided the meat after the squaws had uh, cut it up into rightful portions. Well, then after the fall hunt was over, because it was getting pretty cold in the mountains and in snow, sometimes six inches or a foot deep, and we were driven out of the mountains by the snow, and then we came back to our uh, old camp in the Nestilum Valley. And there we settled down for the winter. And again, we had lived in the long teepees with the four fires, that was more comfortable and cozier and warmer. And uh, it was then we'd have the war dances. Now, they weren't really war dances. Nobody was going to war. But uh, uh, they were the dancers that they used to dance when they were getting ready to go to war. And they still 
dance them because they liked to, and it was, it was pretending they were going to war. And uh, they would, we would have those dances in the evening around the fires, and I danced too with them. The older men would uh, sit in one end of the long teepee and beat on a big war drum and chant their war songs, and then the younger men uh, and I, I wasn't a man, but I joined in with them, and uh, we would dance around the fires and pretend we were looking for the enemy and pretend we'd found these tracks and then we'd uh, perhaps find one and give a war hoop like this. <laughs> but I remember there was one song, and I, I don't exactly know all of its meaning, but it uh, had to do with either with uh, a, a love song or a marriage or something of that kind, and it went like this. Now, I don't know what all those words mean, but Taichi Aoyao is a friendly greeting, and Kawa Him Katsas, I think, must be uh, something about uh, kissing, because Him, I think, are the lips. And I don't really remember all those words. When we came back to Nestle and settled down for the winter, uh, there was an ice pond there that was well frozen over with nice smooth ice. And we used to play an Indian game on there, which was spinning tops. And the way we did it was we would get some nice, smooth, round stones, about as big as a baseball, but shaped a little more like an egg, perhaps. And we'd start them spinning on the ice uh, with whips. And we'd, we'd keep whipping them until they got the spinning around, and then the We'd quit them fast, and they would, they would spin just as fast as you could uh, spin a modern child's top. And another game we used to play, although it wasn't in the wintertime, but a summer game, we uh, would take uh, iron rings, we probably got down at the agency from old, some old the horse harness or something like that, but rings of few inches in diameter, and we'd roll them along the uh, ground like a little hook, and then we would throw spears through it as they rolled along. It's pretty hard to do. Because we'd wrestle and foot race and all those things. Well, when it got close to Christmas time, then my mother and father began to worry about me way off there with the Indians and hadn't heard from me for quite a while. And so they sent a, a courier in from civilization into the camp to get me and bring me out and take me home and go to school again, which I didn't want to do at all. In, in 1893, many, many years ago, and that was the last time I ever saw Chief Joseph, whom I loved very much. You're listening to Reimagined Radio. This is John Barber, producer and host. You'll hear more of our Hearing Voices oral history episode in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you about The Fusebox Show, a different kind of radio storytelling that includes oral histronics. Here's a sample. Fusebox. And uh, remember to watch for dinosaurs driving 73 Vegas. They'll chase you to hell and back, man. Or at least to the nearest Arby's. <laughs> Didn't they eat the hearts of people? Aztecs? No, Catholics. <laughs> Lake of Fire, Mr. Gaines. <laughs> Lake of Fire. Catch Fusebox the first Wednesday of the month at 12.30 p.m. Here on KXRW 99.9. As you heard, the Fusebox show is a unique radio storytelling experience. When Fusebox broadcasts, you can reach out your hands and feel the power coming through your radio. Learn more at the Fusebox Show website, www.thefuseboxshow.com. 
Welcome back to Reimagined Radio. The episode is Hearing Voices. We're sampling from the oral history collection housed at the Clark County Historical Museum, Vancouver, Washington. Our next story was recorded in 2006 as told by Harry W. Hendricks, a retired conductor for the Seattle-Portland-Spokane Railroad. Mr. Hendricks worked his way through the ranks of the Spokane-Portland-Seattle Railroad for more than 40 years. Let's listen to Working on the Railroad by Harry Hendricks. I'm uh, Harry W. Hendricks, uh, 78-year-old retired railroad conductor from the uh, Spokane-Portland-Seattle Railroad and Burlington Northern Railroad. I was born in Yakima, Washington, and um, I was there till the second grade, and then uh, basically... uh, I, we came to Vancouver on uh, 1940. I've been here ever since, except for uh, my time in, a, in the Navy. Uh, my father uh, retired from the Union Pacific Railroad. He became a brakeman, a switchman, actually, uh, on the Iron Mountain and Southern Railroad when he was 14, and he retired when he was 70 years old on uh, Union Pacific out of Yakima, Washington. And uh, I am... Um, I spent more time on trains than I did uh, just about any place else. I learned how to count on a steam gauge on a steam engine. That's where I learned my one, two, three, four, fives. That. And uh, uh, every other day we'd go down with my father uh, when he was leaving town uh, and clean the caboose with him and uh, fill uh, kerosene marker lights and that sort of thing. Um, desk lights, it was all kerosene in those days. How old were you when you started working on the railroad? 21 on the on the Union Pacific, I to work in Portland, Union Pacific River. I was sent to the Dalles, Oregon, and I worked there as a brakeman. And I worked from the Dalles to uh, Pendleton, or the Dalles to uh, Umatilla, or the Dalles up the Oregon Trump to Bend. And I worked there for a while, and pretty soon they sent me to Spokane, which I worked uh, from there over into Idaho, over to, to the Silver Mines. I was always sent up there in the wintertime. And I decided I didn't want to go to Spokane and work in the winter when it was 20 below zero and a 30-mile-an-hour wind blowing and, and froze all the time. And so I understood that the, uh, Spokane, Portland, Seattle was hiring uh, brakemen, so and uh, I went to work for the SPNS. And that was in uh, March 25, 1950. I was working out of uh, Wishram at the time. That's where all the young brakemen uh, went to. And then when I had enough seniority, I had come to Vancouver and work out of there. On the freight train, um, uh, normally the youngest brakeman is uh, the head head end brakeman. He works on on the engine. He puts takes the engine from the roundhouse out to the yard, throwing all the switches. He gets him out to the yard and back on your train, and um, of course pump the pump the uh, train up with air for the brakes. And then uh, when you left town, uh, you got all the switches to head in and head out from various passing tracks. And if you have to be on the local freight, uh, you're doing the switching, and uh, you're the guy that worked with a, uh, he was with a swing man who had to do with uh, switching the boxcars, and uh, that's what you and him did all the time. Uh, he gave the signals and told which track you wanted the cars to go down, and you would lift the and lift her and let the cars go. And um, then later uh, you became of, if you were seniority-wise, you'd probably get to be a flagman on the caboose. And uh, when you'd stop, the, the engineer would whistle out a flag to the rear, uh, along with three shorts, depending which uh, was going. And uh, you'd go back a mile and a quarter and and set down some torpedoes, and then you'd say, come back into three quarters of a mile. And uh, the engineer, uh, when it was time to, for him to move to, to move the train, uh, he would call the flagman in. And uh, probably on the, if you was at the, uh, if your rear your train was pointed south, he'd blow four long whistles, and you'd come in to the caboose. And then he'd wait a certain length, the engineer would wait a certain length of time, and he figured you'd walk that distance to the rear of the train and take off and leave. If um, the flagman wasn't on yet, the conductor would set the air valve and uh, 
and a caboose and set the brakes in the caboose and the engineer couldn't move. And as soon as you got on, he would release the air and, and then the engineer would know it's time he could go because uh, the flagman is on. And if he was on a local, uh, switching all the towns, say between Vancouver and Wishram, uh, and um, you'd learn all the different places where uh, spots, it's called, where you various companies would load the boxcars or unload, whichever. And uh, when you'd leave Vancouver, you'd probably have a train of 80 empties, empty boxcars, and some loaded tank cars. And next to the caboose, you'd probably have some uh, LCL, less than carload, lot of uh, things you would unload, like mattresses, furniture, various things that, uh, that different stores would order along the way, and not a full carload. And uh, you would, the swing man would know where to set out all these cars and pick up all the loads. And so 16 hours later, you'd get into Wishram, you'd have 80 loads, and uh, you'd spotted the 80 empties that you start out of Vancouver with at the various uh, lumber yards or industries that uh, you have to switch that day. If you was working out of Wishram itself, uh, sometimes if you use a conductor, uh, you'd get Shanghai up there because they were out of conductors in Wishram. And then you'd work from Wishram to Pasco or Wishram to Bend. And uh, uh, that was uh, one of the jobs. Or if you was on passenger, as a, as a passenger brakeman or a passenger conductor, you'd work from Portland to Vancouver to Pasco or on trains uh, number six, morning train. Or if you went in the afternoon on the Empire Builder, you'd go all the way from Portland to Vancouver to Pasco to Spokane, and you lay over in Pasco or Spokane for uh, uh, 27 hours. If you just worked to Pasco, you'd lay over there overnight, and uh, and then come back the next day on train number five. Or if you was on the night train, uh, the Western Star from Portland to Vancouver to Pasco to Spokane all night long. It was a mail train and passenger and uh, coaches and sleepers. You are on duty, uh, expect to be on duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, uh, we had the hours of service uh, laws that uh, uh, you, at that time you could, um, if you work 16 hours, you'd have 10 hours rest, undisturbed rest. Our, if you worked less than 16 hours, you'd uh, have eight hours undisturbed rest. But it didn't work out that way because uh, if you get off work, say at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning and you'd been up all night, it took you a while to go home and it took you a while to have breakfast and it took you a while to shower and you went to sleep. And then you got a phone call an hour and a half before you were supposed to report to work. So therefore, uh, you probably only got about six hours sleep or five and a half hours. As a conductor, conductor uh, is in charge of the train and all the people employed thereon. That's everyone. And the people that worked uh, for the uh, conductor is the engineer who is also responsible for the safety of the train with the conductor. And uh, a fireman, if you had a fireman on the train. And... Uh, you'd have a, uh, a swing man, head brakeman, and flight on the freight train at that time. No longer have that, but uh, um, that's the way it was in those days. And uh, and uh, you, the conductor was in charge of all the way bills on the train. Each car had a bill of lading, uh, where it was going, and the routes it took on various railroads to get to where it was going, and the charges on the car and uh, the railroad was paid uh, several different ways, but uh, one of the ways was uh, they was paid for the initial pickup of the car at the plant where you pick the car up. The long haul that you take, say, from Portland to St. Louis, and uh, if it was a great northern, uh, say, Chicago would be better, and if, it, if they spotted the car at Chicago, that would be the third way, the final destination, you got paid for that too. So you got paid three different ways. But if it went to various railroads, everyone got their cut out of it, mileage-wise. 
And the farther you hold the car and the more money you got from your share of it. And they used to have the old business that they'd do the long haul. They would haul a car as far as they could from Portland to get it to New York City. I used to say a conductor do everything but hold a wedding ceremony. When I uh, hired us in, uh, in 1915, I retired in 1993, in 43 years. And counting my time, it would be uh, another year besides. So it's 44 years total. It's an enjoyable job most of the time. Uh, a lot of the time, you was short on sleep, tired. Uh, you worked for some real fine people, mostly. Like any other job, uh, uh, some of the people you worked, you worked with um, weren't the best people in the whole world. But at that time when I hired out, uh, it was completely different working because the people who worked on railroads or in a lot of other places, uh, we just came from a depression. Uh, at that time, uh, I know in the summertime, a train would come in from Pasco to Wishram, a hot August day, and it was called the NP-275s, a Northern Pacific train that made a connection at Pasco with the SPNS, and when it stopped in Wishram to probably take water or change crews mainly, uh, maybe 100 or 150 hobos would get off, and they'd go over the hobo jungle, and that uh, that's where they'd be, or next when that train left town, some other guys would get on. And they never bothered anything. You didn't bother those people. They uh, they were just guys going someplace to go work. It's not that way any longer. But the work itself, um, it was a dangerous job. I worked 44 years. It was that 44 years, 22 guys were killed. Uh, how many people were injured? Seriously, I do not know. I have no idea. But um, it was a dangerous job of uh, collisions, uh, derailments, those type of things. Uh, it was hard times. How many derailments I've been in, I, Rex, I, I don't know. I got how many cars, automobiles we hit, I don't know. How many people were killed, I don't know. It's um, I just do not know. It's just um, it was a dangerous job, and um, but the people I worked with, um, they were good at their most of them were good at their at railroading. They were. Great engineers, great firemen, uh, some good brakemen, trainmen, some great conductors I worked for, all real knowledgeable people. Most of them were not college educated, 99% uh, were not, but they were educated in their type of work, railroad work. Most people who had a, a, a college education didn't stay around the railroad. The, for some reason or other, they they weren't the kind of people who stayed there. Um, but there was great people I worked with. I worked with fantastic people. 1968, they approached me to be a train master. A, uh, a train master is, um, he is your, a trainman's immediate supervisor. Uh, many of them understood, if you came from the ranks, as a train master, you understood what the work was. Uh, the railroads tried not to get too many people from the ranks because you get sort of contaminated, so they'd rather get you out of college and, uh, and uh, train them themselves to a certain extent. Uh, did, that, did that work out? Evidently it has because they, they run trains every day. Uh, met with some strange people doing that. If you could go back and live your life again, would you choose railroading or some other form of work? Uh, you know, I, I suppose everyone thinks about that. What would they rather have done? What would they rather do? What type of employment? No, I think I'd, I think I'd like to stay railroading. I came up with steam when they had steam. I came up when they had the small diesel engines. And it progressed into big engines, big trains, uh, uh, heavy rail. Rail wasn't a 80-pound rail anymore. It's 140, 150-pound rail to three-foot lengths. Uh, it, um, 
it was an exciting job, very exciting job, most of the time. Uh, I got to work in the Columbia Gorge, which is a beautiful place, and all during the day, at various places at Gorge, the scenery changes, and the various times of the year it changes. It's, uh, I was lucky to work there. It's extremely lucky. I was lucky to work with the great guys I worked with. I was, uh, I was lucky to the extent that I uh, made uh, uh, quite a bit of money with the type of education I had. Although I uh, read a voracious reader, and, uh, the a trainman's on the road a great deal, and so he has to have a wife that understands this, and uh, she raises the family basically. So if you didn't have a wife that went with you on on this type of a life that you had, uh, you had problems. But fortunately, I had a supremely great wife that uh, she took care of both and sons. Yeah, would I change it? Not a bit. When I went to work in 1950, uh, if you leave. Vancouver, the freight train, you had a steam engine probably, most likely. Uh, you probably had about 80 cars, had an uh, engineer and a fireman, a head brakeman on the engine, and a caboose. You had a conductor, a swing man who took care of the train in between the caboose and the engine, and a flagman who protected the rear of the train. Uh, you'll probably met one, maybe two trains on your trip to Wishram. And now you have a conductor and engineer on the engine. Uh, those years of having a flagman and a swing man and a head brakeman, they're all gone because they no longer pick up and set out cars. They have block signals. It's, it protects the rear of your train. Um, you no longer have hot boxes. I should explain that to somewhat. Uh, each uh, set of wheels has an axle that the boxcar rests on, same as an automobile, and they have a, a solid brass bearing that has a, a babbit or a lead type thing for bearing. And they're oiled with some oily uh, waste, which is like uh, a balls of cotton. There are threads, actually, comes from uh, from uh, mills that uh, make thread for, for various uh, clothing, that sort of thing. They have cotton thread, and they keep the journal, which is that's called the journal, uh, lubricated. And you don't, and they would get hot because of various reasons, uh, the lack of oil probably, and they'd be on fire. And you'd have to put the train, put the fire out, and maybe put a new bearing in it. You don't do that anymore because most of the bearings now, all the bearings now, are roller bearings. And they have uh, detectors along the right away every, I think it's uh, about 12 miles now, every 12 miles they have a detector. And it detects if you have dragging equipment, some fall off the train and it's dragging, or you have a hot box in one of the journals. And they have that. Uh, they have all radios, everything has radios. Uh, and they're, you can talk just about any place. Uh, used to be, uh, we never had radios for a long time coming up, and when we did, they were old, decrepit things that, uh, well, they probably weighed five pounds, and you carried them like a, like a suitcase. That's what you call them, a suitcase. And uh, radios uh, became small, and you carry around your pocket. They uh, communicated with the engineer, communicate the rest of the guys on the, the crewman on the train or dispatcher or any of the wayside stations that you go through uh, for various reasons and other trains. You're listening to Reimagined Radio's Hearing Voices episode. I'm John Barber, producer and host. So far, Erskine Wood has told us about his experiences living with Chief Joseph and the Ne Per Se people. Harry Hendricks narrated his experiences working for the Spokane-Portland-Seattle Railroad. 
Next, we'll hear from Lavert Richards, a reporter for the Clark County Sun newspaper. He tells how, on June 20, 1937, a single-engine airplane with long, bright, red glider-like wings and the call sign ANT-25 landed at Vancouver's Pearson Airfield. Two days earlier, June 18, the plane had taken off from an airport outside Moscow, Russia, headed for Oakland, California. The Soviet airplane had a crew of three, Valery Chokolov, pilot, Georgi Betakov, relief pilot, and Alexander Belyakov, navigator and radio operator. Their planned route was over the roof of the world. If successful, this would be the first non-stop flight from the USSR to the United States over the North Pole. Stormy weather and cold temperatures drained the pilot's fuel faster than planned. Near Eugene, Oregon, Chakalov ordered the plane to turn around and seek a landing field. After 63 hours flying non-stop, 5,288 miles into its journey, June 20, Sunday morning, the plane with its crew of three landed safely in Vancouver, Washington. People gathered at Pearson Airfield. They witnessed the plane drop below the rain clouds, dip its red wings, and turn for its final approach. And then they ran toward the airplane, cheering the Russian aviators as heroes. Let's listen as Richard describes what happened during the surprise visit by the three Soviet airmen to Vancouver. We have a tape of Harry Diamond telling about the landing of the Russian uh, yeah. Russians. Yeah. And uh, he apparently was the first person to see them and sent them up to General Marshall. And I think you must have taken it from there. Well, yes. Uh, disagreement there. I know... Uh, Harry Diamond, he was chief of police all this time, and he said that he actually arrested them. He was going to take them downtown because they couldn't speak English, they didn't know who they were, and they were on government property. And at and about they, that time, uh, they had no Senator visas. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't see them land, of course. Uh, I got there about an hour afterwards, and I followed the story from then on to help cover it that day waited in the library there, uh, the Marshall House, uh, while the, not only while the flyers slept, but they were waiting for Alexander Troyanovsky to arrive from San Francisco to tell the Russian flyer what they could say and what they couldn't. And, and after he talked to them, then they went out on the balcony, uh, and then Troyanovsky uh, introduced them and uh, Chikalov made his famous speech where he said that uh, the uh, rivers of Russia and the rivers of America flow into the same ocean and we are a common planet, something like that. And <laughs> that's about all. We didn't get a chance to talk to them because they, they didn't speak English. But I remember uh, the next day they went down to Padden's, Jim Padden's store on Main Street, and uh, he gave them hats. Or, they had the choice of hats. Uh, before that, the uh, tailors from, from Iron Frank <laughs> had come over and measured them and uh, tailored some suits for them. And I don't know whether they got raincoats there or whether they got them here. And then, of course, they they went down to the, went over to Swan Island, took off from San Francisco, and one of our reporters uh, sneaked aboard and flew down there with them. <laughs> Once they were airborne, they couldn't be able to kick him out. And uh, then I kept uh, covering what happened. I was there when they unsealed the barographs, which is a a barometer attached to a clock which records the air pressure, in other words, translated into altitude, and that would show whether or not they had landed and then prove that they had not landed. It had uh, three barographs, uh, one under one wing, one in the tail, and I think the other under the other wing. One of them had failed, but the other two established beyond doubt that they had not landed, that they had flown 63. 
three hours, I believe it was, nonstop from <clears throat> from Moscow over the North Pole to to uh, well, actually, got beyond Vancouver and returned to land at Vancouver. And later, I was able to talk to Bidikoff, the uh, co-pilot. He was the only one who could fly instruments, and they were in the clouds probably uh, uh, half the time. I don't see how he could stay awake and fly on instruments. It's very, you have to concentrate entirely, and you're not, even your eyes get tired, but he did. And when he came in to land here, he said that they didn't have any brakes on the plane. And whether they had uh, flaps or not. But anyhow, on approach, he saw he was going to overshoot the field. So he turned off the switch <laughs> and <laughs> landed, landed what we'd call a dead stick. And uh, the ship rolled pretty far to the uh, East. to the uh, east end of the field, but he still, the props are still turning. He turned back the switch and, and was able to have power to taxi back to the white hangar, which is still at White House, which is still there, and that was the headquarters for the Aerial Observation Squadron. And I guess everybody knows what happened after that. Hmm. I remember uh, Heine Rasmussen, who had the the stationary uh, store on Main Street, he proposed a monument to the Russians, and he actually had one designed. He had a little plaster model of it, and about that time, uh, the Russians were beginning to be recognized as enemies, and he never got anywhere with that, his proposal. So way back in 74, that uh, Peter Belov and Dick Bone here in Vancouver, uh, went aboard a Russian trawler out there, the Russian seamen wanted to see the monument, and there wasn't any, so they decided <laughs> they'd have a monument. In 1975, which was what, the sesquicentennial of the state? No, Some no it must have been of Vancouver. Yeah, Vancouver, mm -hmm. right. So they got a monument money together in a hurry, and the Russians supplied the tablet, and we buy the money, build it, and there it is. The only one, only monument to a Russian achievement, only monument in the United States to a Russian achievement. It was a, a monument to the men. Well, and also to the uh, Russian designers, because that plane, actually three of them were built. They'd been designed specifically for long-range flight. And they tried them out. They flew from Moscow to uh, to an island, Ud Island, UDD Island, just off the coast of Siberia, uh, and uh, tested it out, and they'd flown. Well, that was a record for Arctic flying until they broke it to fight over the pole. So it was testimony to the ability of the Russians. How far could they uh, fly in 63? 6,000 statute miles. They actually flew further than that, but that 6,000 miles direct from Moscow to Vancouver. But they got to the North Pole, and they couldn't go any higher, and they were icing up, and it's getting dark. So they decided to turn to the right, which would be, uh, would be to the west. No, turned it to the east, went out to our west coast and dropped down during the night and found the coast, followed the coastline. Said they came up the Columbia River, very low altitude and raining, and uh, then went back up in the clouds and headed for Eugene. Then they were been running out of gas and the weather, apparently the weather was soft in the head, so they turned around and came back. And they landed here partly because uh, Levinevsky had landed here in 1929 with a twin-engine Russian bomber, and so they knew about Pearson Field. So they landed, and that was real history, and that really put Vancouver on the world map.
Was was it true that Vancouver, um, that Pearson Air Park was the one of the first uh, airfields? And yes, uh, far as I know, the historian has definitely established that it was the first air airport to be established and operated continually ever since. Uh, if they don't close it down, they better not. Um, so it is. A, it is history itself, of course, there um, I don't know who's a real historian on that uh, subject, but John Woolley has all the, the documents and he's the one that makes the claim. Hello everyone, John Barber here to encourage your support of Community Radio. Reimagined Radio is brought to you by KXRW-FM Vancouver, Washington, and KXRY-FM Portland, Oregon. Both are community radio stations. The thought-provoking programs heard on these stations are made possible by your support. And when you support community radio, your investment stays local. It works for your community. It builds something that benefits everyone. If you already support community radio, thank you for your generosity. If not, please contact your community radio station and learn how to support their efforts. This is Reimagined Radio. Our episode is Hearing Voices. You heard Living with Chief Joseph, an oral history told by Erskine Wood about his experiences living with Chief Joseph and the Naypersay people. In working on the railroad, Harry Hendricks described some of his experiences working for the Spokane-Portland-Seattle Railroad from the 1950s to the 1990s. And Lavert Richards, a reporter for the Clark County Sun newspaper, recalled the surprise landing of a single-engine airplane at Vancouver's Pearson Airfield, piloted by three Russian airmen in 1937. This landing marked the first nonstop flight from Moscow, Russia, to the United States by a single-engine plane over the North Pole. I hope you enjoyed this Reimagined Radio episode, Hearing Voices. Please visit our website and learn more, www.reimaginedradio.net. Content curation and script by John Barber. Sound design and post-production by Mark Rose. Our presence on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is coordinated by Regina Carroll Social Media Management. Graphic design by Katherine Klaus. Our announcer is Jack Armstrong. This is John Barber, producer and host. Thanks again for listening. This has been a production of Reimagined Radio. Our radio broadcasts are heard on local, regional, and international community radio stations. For on-demand streaming, point your browsers to our website, Reimagined Radio, that's all one word, no punctuation, dot net. While you're there, subscribe to our snappy email program guide. Thank you so much for listening, and please join us again for another episode of Reimagined Radio, where we'll continue our exploration of radio storytelling. Are you a fan of all things horror? Yeah? You are? Well, in that case, find Tuesday Terrors, which is the mutual audio feed that comes out on a Tuesday, believe it or not. Shock horror, I know. But if you subscribe there, you'll find amazing horror fiction audio in your player every Tuesday. Yeah. Tuesday Terrors. Subscribe to the Mutual Audio Network. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together. Where am I? Okay, handcuff him. My daughter, what about my daughter? Tonight's broadcast will be a controversial one. Are you really psychic? I don't know what I am. I am the iconoclasm. You're just some rodent I failed to kill. You're a coward. Your eyes. eyes. 
What's, What's wrong with your eyes? Beyond the Gates is a brand new audio drama starting this October. From speculative and sci-fi to supernatural and black comedy, join us for a new series of genre-bending morality tales. Join us as we go Beyond the Gates. Thank you.